Women have been playing football for more than 150 years, and it's always been political. Some have been celebrated, but others have been ridiculed, criticized, and forgotten. This is the Forgotten 11, the hidden history of women's football. I'm not going to the White House. No. You know, there was a lot of critics talking about us, but we're back, so suck in that one. <laughs> Give me the effing ball. Playing like a girl means you're a badass. Welcome to the Forgotten 11. I'm Chris. Sorry it's been a while since the last episode. Lots of things have been happening here. Hopefully we'll get back to a more regular schedule soon. Today's episode is not strictly about women's football, but it is about everyone's football. Did you ever wonder how FIFA went from a small rulemaking body to a multi-billion dollar organization with offices and influence in almost every country on earth? Television was first invented in the 1930s. The first images broadcast powerfully enough to matter were the 1936 Berlin Olympics. But TV didn't catch on right away. Partly this was due to World War II. In 1954, the World Cup was first broadcast, but not many people watched it. Not because they weren't interested, but because nearly all the TVs in the world were in the United States. And most Americans are only now, 70 years later, starting to watch football. In those early days of broadcasting World Cups, FIFA did make a bit of money on the broadcasts, but not FIFA money. And by that, I mean what people think of FIFA today, a huge global organization worth billions of dollars, with its greed everywhere on display, from schoolyard pitches to World Cups to heads of state. While FIFA was strict about the game, it wasn't powerful the way it is now. Until the 1970s, FIFA was a pretty small operation. Mostly their job was to write the rules of the game and run the World Cup. It was dominated by Europeans and especially the British. In 1961, Sir Stanley Rouse was elected president and he pretty much continued things as, as they had been. He had been secretary of the English FA he wrote a new set of rules for football in 1938, which is pretty much what we use today. Sir Stanley Rouse was very much a product of traditional colonial British politics. As president of FIFA, he, like his predecessors, refused to be paid. Under Rouse, FIFA had a tiny budget and just a few paid staff. And FIFA mostly concerned itself with running the World Cup, training referees and coaches. But the world was changing around FIFA. After World War II, European colonial territories began to unravel around the world. In the 30 years following the war, dozens of new countries were formed in Africa, South America, Asia, and these countries would eventually join FIFA. One thing seemed clear almost everywhere. Whatever differences players had off the pitch, economic, social, religious, racial, these differences had no place on the pitch. And Stanley Rouse was on the wrong side of history here. In 1948, South Africa began its policy and practice of apartheid, which is total social and political segregation of people based on their race. And this meant that in South Africa, there would not be teams of black players and white players, 
blacks and whites couldn't even play in the same leagues. People around the world, and especially in Africa itself, demanded that FIFA eject them from the Federation. South Africa was not ejected, and they continued to field all-white teams. Stanley Rouse did not seem bothered by this. In the early 1970s, Rouse insisted that the Soviet Union and Chile play a World Cup match in Chile's Estadio Nacional. The Soviets refused because the stadium was at the time being used by General Pinochet as a concentration camp to torture his enemies. You could argue that outside of Europe, FIFA has never been very popular. Their strict enforcement of rules and perceived preferences for European members were enough to make the rest of the world just put up with them. But this would all change with just one man. He was loved by some, hated by some, but respected by everyone. What he did with football and FIFA changed every professional sport in the world forever. Comparisons to Genghis Khan or Alexander the Great are not too far off the mark. He was a marketing genius, a visionary. He knew how to connect all the right people at all the right times. He knew when to offer gifts and when to take them away. He worked in countries all over the world and knew what deals could be made in what countries. He's reasonably being compared to the Pope. But a much more fitting title would be a Mafia Don. But then Mafia Dons don't have the power he had. Joao Havelange was born in Brazil to Belgian immigrants and was an accomplished athlete. He played for Rio's Fulminense and was an Olympic swimmer and later a shrewd businessman. He created Brazil's first commercial bus company, Viaxiao Cometa, which made him a small fortune. But Havelange's biggest talent was networking. He knew people everywhere in every industry. And if the name rings a bell, he was one of the promoters of the 1971 Fife Women's World Cup in Mexico. In 1955, Havelange became a member of the Brazilian Olympic Committee. In 1958, he was elected president of the Brazilian Football Association, which in Brazil means a lot more than being president of U.S. soccer. He, like most South Americans, and many others, had always had a problem with FIFA being so Eurocentric. At the end of World War II, FIFA had just 54 members. But in the 1960s, this number exploded. With the end of European colonialism, those colonies became independent country, countries. Africa alone now had more than 30 new countries. And there were more than 100 others. All would eventually join FIFA. In 1971, Havelange decided that he would challenge Sir Stanley Rouse for the presidency of FIFA. The South American federations would all support him. And here's a little bit of expensive genius for you. When FIFA votes for a new president, each member country gets the same number of votes. So a tiny country like Belize gets the same number of votes as France or Brazil. A country like the United States, which barely even plays football at that time, gets an equal vote with England. Ross would assume that so long as World Cups came off without issue, inertia would keep him in office. Havelange had other ideas. 
Shortly after the Fife Women's World Cup in 1971, Havelange began a world tour, starting in Central America and the Caribbean. He appeared at CONCACAF conferences and national football conferences. He explained that large developed nations with a football infrastructure in place didn't need FIFA resources, but newer and smaller countries did. England didn't need more pitches and coaches, but Guatemala did. Then he went to Africa and Asia to make his case. As head of the Brazilian FA, he often brought the Brazilian national team with him to play exhibition matches with local teams. And remember, this team included Pele. In Africa, he assured, assured the African FAs that he would remove South Africa from FIFA until they ended apartheid. Not everyone was convinced, though. The president of Nigeria's FA, a man named Oruk Oyo, was likely to support, support Sir Stanley Rouse in the upcoming election. So Havelange did what he would come, come to be known for. He made some phone calls, he made some promises, and he made some threats. Havelange had a network of legitimate and not so legitimate contacts. At the next meeting of the Nigerian FA, Oruk Oyu was deposed by the members of Nigeria's FA and replaced by Havelange loyalists. Havelange also promised reforms to FIFA, which would benefit African countries, like expanding the World Cup to allow more African teams to participate. He would create an under-20 World Cup for countries that couldn't make it to the proper World Cup. He would ensure more resources for poor countries to develop referees, support staff, and stadiums. In 1972, he organized a tournament in Brazil called the Mini Copa. Avalanche invited 19 teams from key countries, and Brazil paid all their expenses. FIFA delegates from around the world were invited and shown Havelange's vision for football around the world. As the presidential election neared, Rouse asked for a little help from a man named Horst Dossler. You maybe haven't heard that name, but I'll bet you know who his father is, and maybe his uncle. His father was Adolf Dossler, a shoemaker. He went by the name Adi instead of Adolf, so Adi Dossler, as in Adidas. And Adi Dossler's brother was Rudolf Dossler, who was the founder of Puma. Horst Dossler was the chairman of Adidas, which was quickly becoming the biggest sports brand in the world. At the 1974 FIFA Congress, Horst Dossler would make several impassioned speeches in defense of Rouse's presidency. The vote would take place before the June 1974 World Cup. In just that first six months, Havelange traveled to 86 countries seeking their vote. Sir Stanley Rouse said to delegates, I can offer no special inducements to obtain support. I prefer the record to speak for itself. Havelange won 68 to 52, and what he is about to do to FIFA and sports is going to change the world forever. From 1975 to 78, FIFA made just 12 million US dollars. Yeah, about $4 million a year. Now, you probably know that World Cups are awarded well in advance. So while Havelange 
was president of FIFA in 1974, it wasn't until 1982 that you can truly see his influence. But I would bet that after watching the 1970 World Cup, Avalanche knew what he was going to do. The 1970 World Cup was a different kind of World Cup. It was the first one to allow substitutions, so deliberately injuring players didn't give you an advantage. It had that lighter black and white checkered ball so you could see it spin. It was called the Telstar, and it was named after the satellite that would, for the first time, broadcast the World Cup live and in color to everyone in the world. It was the first time many people saw the ridiculously bright yellow jerseys worn by Pele and the Brazilians. It saw the introduction of Panini books so fans could collect and trade pictures of all the players. So that now the fans had a new way to participate. Adidas sold 600,000 Telstar balls just after the tournament. The 1970 saw the match of the century. It saw Maradona's hand of God and the invention of the wave. The matches at the Azteca Stadium saw more than 100,000 fans attend each match. What Havilland saw was money being wasted. All the excitement, all the fans, all the flash, all the potential. If Havilland was going to deliver on promises to help build football infrastructure in poorer countries, he was going to need a lot of money. Every other sport in the world would follow his example. And it was pretty simple. FIFA and the World Cup would only have one sponsor in each category. There would be only one official soft drink of FIFA's World Cup, only one car company, and only one beer. It sounds simple. Just one official soft drink would be displayed for weeks over the course of the largest, most watched sporting event in the world. Now imagine Coke and Pepsi getting into a bidding war, each offering more and more money until one side has to give up or go bankrupt. And this happened in industry after industry. Companies just started throwing money at FIFA. Starting with the 1982 Men's World Cup, the prize money for men's teams nearly doubles every four years through today. Havelange once joked that when he arrived at FIFA in 1974, there was $20 in the safe. And when he left, there was four and a half billion. And that's just the profit, not the total revenue. And he wasn't done. During his time as president, he added the under 20 and under 17 World Cups, the Women's World Cup, each with exclusive sponsors. Oh, so you can't afford to be the official beer of the Men's World Cup? How about the under 20s, or how about the Women's World Cup? Here's David Goldblatt, a football historian. As president of FIFA between 1974 and 1998, Havelange presided over an international organization whose geographical spread was far in excess of the global reach of Catholicism and whose devotees, measured by the viewing figures for the 1998 World Cup final, were far greater in number than Rome's flock. Put simply, by 1998, football, because of Havelange, 
had more fans than God. When Havelunch took over in 1974, FIFA didn't have the money to fulfill all the promises he'd made in his campaign. So he asked Horst Dossler, Adidas, and Coca-Cola for help. Adidas would become the supplier of all the national team's equipment. And both Adidas and Coke would be the new primary sponsors of the Men's World Cup. The money was apparent everywhere. Havelange was building a new FIFA headquarters in Zurich, Switzerland. He was hiring full-time staff, PR firms, and financiers. While FIFA had always sold the TV rights to World Cups, under Havelange, the amount FIFA was paid for them exploded. In the 1980s and 90s, FIFA introduced the Under-17 World Cup, the Under-20 World Cup, the Confederations Cup, and the Women's World Cup, each of them with the same rules as the marketing of the Men's Cup one official sponsor in each category. FIFA was starting to make FIFA money. But not everyone was happy with the new FIFA. In 1976, there was a coup in Argentina, and a man named Carlos Lacoste became president and dictator of Argentina. Then in 1982, his cousin took over the presidency, while Lacoste became vice president of FIFA. Nothing fishy there. Another close associate of Havelange was a Brazilian man named Castor de Andrade. Andrade ran a large illegal gambling association in Brazil. Havelange described him as a loyal family man, a devoted friend, and a good administrator. In 1994, Andrade was sentenced to prison for racketeering. Havelange's son-in-law, Ricardo Texiara, was head of the Brazilian Football Association in 1993, Pele accused Texera of corruption. And if there's a Darth Vader in this story, it's Seth Blatter, who became the general secretary of FIFA in 1981. He studied the president well. We won't get into all the things that were wrong with FIFA, but here's an example. In 1982, the head of Adidas, Horst Dossler, and a few other businessmen created International Sport and Leisure, or ISL. Set up to market the 1986 World Cup, they ended up with other World Cups and the Olympics. In 2001, it was revealed that ISL had paid $185 million in what they called personal commissions. The judge in the case called them bribes. In 1998, Havelange decided to resign as president, either because of his age, or probably more likely, the world was starting to notice the ridiculous amount of money he and FIFA were making. Havelange recommended Sepp Blatter take over, and either because he liked Blatter, or because he really, really didn't like him. Just before he left, Havelange left, ISL paid FIFA $1.6 billion for TV and marketing rights to the 2002 and 2006 World Cups. It seems that under Havelange, FIFA became a criminal organization where World Cups, World Cup expansions, TV rights were all sold by Havelange and his friends, and no one knows how much they made. Sepp Blatter became president in 1998 and basically continued business as usual. It wasn't until the ISL collapsed in 2001 
that people started investigating where the money went. In 2012, courts found that Havelange and his son-in-law Teixeira had received at least $50 million from ISL. And remember, that's just one company. FIFA's all over the place. Another investigation revealed that Sepp Blatter was well aware of the payments. Blatter later said that bribery wasn't a crime in Switzerland at the time. In 2015, Blatter was still feeling the heat of all the corruption and bribery and resigned as president. Neither he nor Havelange were ever seriously prosecuted or jailed, though Blatter was eventually given a 12-year ban from all things football. I wonder how much they made. Thanks for listening, as always. Follow the show on Twitter at ForgottenXI. Leave a review wherever you listen. It really does help new listeners find the show. Until next time.